So Easter, the, the, the death, burial, and then resurrection of Jesus Christ is obviously a theme of, of pretty much the whole Bible. But there's the book of First Peter actually covers this story in a way that most of us don't think about. The whole book of First Peter is really centered around this idea that everything in life how you talk and how you think and how you act and how you work and, and how you relate to your spouse. Everything should be transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by Easter. Let me read a couple of passages to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. How about this? For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when I was in college, I had a a friend, really entertaining friend, um, Matt Williams. We called him the International Man of Mystery. He was fluent in a whole bunch of different languages, and he would always go to Chinese restaurants just to show off and be like, Huang Chao Fong. We're like, you really don't speak Chinese, do you? You're just making that up, but... He did. Uh, he, he spoke all these languages, traveled really broadly, and he was only like 20 years old. So Matt, um, Matt was a great guy. When I first met him, he had just gotten back from a semester abroad in Brazil. And so when he was there, he described the first weekend that he came to Brasilia, the, the capital city there. He said he was invited to go to the Metropolitan Cathedral of Brasilia. If you know anything about architecture, this is just, this is fantastic, this huge cathedral. And he thought this will be a great cultural experience. The only problem is he didn't speak a word of Portuguese and he had never been to Catholic Mass before. Now, I don't know if you've been to Mass, but there's a lot of like sit, stand, kneel. And, and he went in with his friends and he said, how am I supposed to know what to do? And they said, no problem. You just follow the guy in front of you. He sits, you sit. He stands, you stand. He kneels, you kneel. Great. So no problem. This, this worked without a hitch for like, for the first, you know, for, for most of the service. To the very end, it worked great. Everyone stood, he stood. Everyone sat, he sat. He just followed the guy in front of him. Then at the very end of the service, the priest walked forward, said something in Portuguese, and Matt had no clue what. The guy in front of him stood, so he stood. And suddenly he heard the whole congregation erupt in laughter. Looked around and realized they were the only two guys standing. So as they're leaving, he turns to his friends and says, What was that all about? And they said, Oh, the priest just walked forward and said, There was a new father. And would he please stand and be recognized? <laughs> what was Matt's problem? Matt was in a world he did not know in a culture that seemed far, far away, in a language that he did not speak, with rituals he'd never seen before. Sometimes when we read the Scriptures, sometimes afraid that when we read the Scriptures, we're going to have the same problem that Matt faced. That we're entering a world. We just read, we just read a story by a, a fisherman from 2,000 years ago who spoke probably Aramaic and wrote in Greek, languages we do not know or speak. 
He was in ancient Palestine 2,000 years ago. That's a world that we do not know. When we come to the Bible, we're meeting a world that we don't know, a culture that seems far, far away, and a language we don't speak. And yet sometimes I feel like, just like Matt, we'll have this great cultural experience. We'll come in, we'll go through the motions. People are singing, so I guess I'll sing. He's reading, I guess I'll listen. And we'll have no idea what was just said. Peter just told us that the great purpose of our lives is for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. When's the last time you've sprinkled something with blood? Is that normal? Is that part of your experience? Uh, Listen to this. Jesus just said that because of Easter, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything in our lives should change. Should change how we act, how we talk, how we think, how we do our jobs, how we respect the government, how we treat our spouse, how we view ourselves. When we ask Peter, why should Easter change all that? His answer is this, because you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. When's the last time you've said you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ? If this isn't confusing enough, when you read through Peter, you're going to find that he over and over and over again refers to to the scriptures, to the prophets in particular, Isaiah. He'll quote Hosea three times. Who quotes Hosea? My fear is that we'll all come here today and like Matt, we're going to have a nice cultural experience We're going to go through the motions. We'll do church on Easter. And we'll have no idea what difference this is supposed to make when we walk out those doors. So today, I I, I want to try and sidestep that. I want to go on a little journey. I I want to listen to the language. I want to see some of the stuff they saw. I want to I want to get into the context. I want to I want to read some of the prophets. And my hope is just maybe, maybe. That if we struggle and if, if we pay attention and if we fix our eyes on the things that they say, fix your eyes on, that maybe, just maybe, we'll get a glimpse of what Peter saw when he said we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Our text for today is actually not Peter. I'm going to be preaching from Hosea. Hosea chapter 1. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you don't, if you have a smartphone... Whip that guy out. Uversion.com. There's a free Bible, free Bible app. Use your favorite one. Then you don't even have to look it up and pretend like you know where Hosea is. Hosea chapter 1. Let me set the context. Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We've got the scriptures behind me if you want to follow there. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's a nation in the south. During the reign of Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam the second, you nerds, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, that's the nation in the north. So here's the context. Hosea is a prophet in the 8th century BC, 800 years before Christ, 700 and some, before Christ. And he is a prophet to this northern kingdom called Israel. Now there's three things you're going to need to know about Israel at this time in order to appreciate what's going on here. Number one They were not only wealthy, but they were extremely materialistic. Amos, a contemporary, is going to talk about how all these people are complaining about their vacation homes and their interior decorators while people are literally starving on the streets. The second thing you need to know about them is that the only other thing they had on mind after money 
was, um, I'm not quite sure how to say this in a family-friendly setting, so let's just say, in ancient Israel, Victoria had no secrets, okay? You get it? All right. The third thing you need to know is that they were very, very religious, but they did not worship God anymore. I mean, um, there were places of worship, what they called high places back then, were at every major intersection. It was like Wawa and Dunkin' Donuts up here. Like, it's hard to find a major intersection without one of those. That's what places of worship were like, because they had two gods, Baal or Baal and Asherah, who represented the god of money, of wealth, of materialism, and represented the god of fertility. And those two gods, they worshipped them everywhere, all that they could. They loved those gods. Those gods never told them, you can't do that. Those gods promised them money and pleasure and personal fulfillment and happiness. Whatever they wanted to do, those gods said, you can do it. You can be the best you ever. And so they loved those gods. So into this culture, God is going to send this prophet Hosea. And he's going to send him with a very peculiar command. Watch, watch this. The word of the Lord, when, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take for yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Just to be clear here, the word adulterous wife there, that, that means prostitute. Or perhaps just a woman with the character of a prostitute. But in the end, does it really matter, right? Go marry a prostitute. You have to think this must have been an awkward conversation. Do you, do you ever wrestle with God in your prayers? God, I really don't want to do this. You'd have to think when God first said to Jose, here's what I want you to do. There's this, this big awkward pause. Like, you want me to do What? And if we look, like, you read commentators today, and they get all bent out of shape. How could a good, holy, loving God actually ask his prophet to marry a prostitute? How could he even do that? The problem is the text says nothing. It just says God commanded it, and verse 3, he did it. So he married Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim. Now, this this is one of those things. This is supposed to shock us. We're all supposed to stop right here and giggle, but none of you did. So let me explain it to you. You know, it always kills a joke when you have to actually explain it. Um, the blind, the blah in Hebrew is the word for, for uh, fig cakes. It's for pressed figs. The blaim is just a plural. So this is, she's the daughter of fig cakes. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us, but, but back then fig cakes were believed to be um, a potent source of energy. So think Red Bull. Give you wings, Right? But not just that. It was not just a source of energy. It was also believed to be an aphrodisiac. So think Red Bull mixed with Viagra. It'll give you wings. So he married Gomer, daughter of fig cakes over there. That's what the text just said. And the whole thing here, you're supposed to, the whole thing is supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to be appalling. When you read this, you're supposed to say, what is going on, God? And he tells us, the second half of verse 2, why are you doing this, God? Because the land, Israel, my people, is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from me. This whole thing. Is an object lesson. 
God is saying that his relationship to Israel is like a marriage. Now I want you to follow this because the whole Bible is going to say this. God is saying that his relationship to us is like a marriage. Well, you ask, how is it like a marriage? Despite, though, our world has forgotten this, marriage, according to the Bible, is not a contract. It is not an exchange of goods and services like, hey, I'll pay the bills if you take out the trash. I'll change the dirty diaper if you get a job. No! When you read the Bible, that fundamentally, a marriage is an exchange of persons. I'll give myself to you, you give yourself to me. I am yours and you are mine. When you read through it, Genesis chapter 2, when God first institutes marriage, what does he say? The two will become one flesh, one new life. They're going to share life together. It's going to be one Song of Solomon says it this way. You might have heard this. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Technically, this exchange of persons cost you nothing. But the fact of the matter is, is that it cost you everything. If you give yourself, you give everything. That's what marriage is supposed to be like. That's what a relationship with God is supposed to be like. So let's, let's be clear. Our relationship with God is not a contract. It's not, if I go to church, you answer my prayers. And if I give you money, you forgive my sins. It doesn't work like that. Listen, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your hard work. He doesn't want your church attendance. He doesn't want your daily devotionals. He doesn't want your important job. And he doesn't want your uber successful kids. God doesn't need anything. God wants you. When he invites you into a relationship, he says, I am yours and you are mine. And when he gets you, he gets everything. So, so, back to Hosea. When we give our very selves, our greatest love and our passion and our life to stuff, to a job, to friends, to hobbies, to a career, to our own personal happiness. When we give our heart and our life and our very selves to everything else and refuse to give it to God, God says that is spiritual adultery. We are His and we've given ourselves to another. In the next few verses of Hosea, you can follow along if you've got the passage. I'll just show you a picture. I figure this would be easier. In Hosea chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, we get to meet the family. Hosea takes her himself, Gomer, daughter of Deblaim. And then, then things go pretty well. Starts off, they have a kid. And God says, I want you to name that child Jezreel. In Hebrew, that means scatter. Because when my people are unfaithful, they are going to be scattered No longer are they going to be drawn to me. They're going to be scattered across the nation as a judgment against them. And then we read on the story and we find out that Gomer actually finds a guy outside the marriage. Hey. Hosea is not too happy. And she gets pregnant and has a little girl. And it's not Hosea's. God says to him, you name that little girl Lo-Ru-Hamah. No mercy. 
Because when my people cut themselves off from me, the world is going to show them no mercy. They're going to see what life is like apart from me. They want to trust in these foreign gods and these other gods in money and in pleasure to protect them, to fulfill them. And they're going to see what it's really like. And then another guy shows up. And she's pregnant again. And this little baby girl, Hosea takes one look at her and says, that is not my child. That is clearly not my child. And God says, and that's what you're going to call her, not my people. Because these people who I called, who I loved, who I brought into life, who, who were designed to share their lives with me, they live like they're not my people anymore. Jezreel scattered. Lo Ruhamon, no mercy. Lo me, not my people. In chapter 2, it goes from bad to worse. It, at, at this time, we see God in this prophetic, in this like metaphorical sense. He takes Israel who's his unfaithful wife. He takes her and, and he takes her and pulls her and throws her into court. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 2. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her. Do you know what that is? That's accuse her, charge her. You know what that is? That's court language. We're throwing her into court. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. This is divorce language, but don't be mistaken. This is not divorce court. This is a criminal court. Now, you need to follow me here. This is going to be a little weird. In this culture, at that time, adultery was punishable in a criminal court. Now, this just seems weird to our American ears because, I mean, we value the individual. We devalue the individual's rights above everything. You know, if I'm no longer happy in my marriage, then I have the right to seek my happiness. Doesn't matter what it does to my wife. Doesn't matter what it does to my kids. Doesn't matter what it does to our society. I have a right to be happy. That my personal happiness is above all. That's what America says. But God seems to think something differently. There's a word for love in Hebrew. It's hesed. Sometimes translated love, sometimes faithfulness, sometimes faithful commitment. It's this faithful love that holds together the universe, that builds together, that forms new relationships. This love that holds together families and our love for God and the world itself. God is love. That's the type of love that God is. God seems to think that that love, a love that swears, I will love you without condition and without expiration. A love that says, I'm not going anywhere. God seems to think that that love is not only more important than our personal happiness, he says it's more important than life itself. Because life without that love is not life at all. And so, in the Old Testament, if anyone sinned against this love, if they swore to love someone like that and then didn't, they could actually face capital punishment. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 23, really, through 13 especially, we're in a criminal trial, and God is pronouncing judgments. He's going to say, His people will be scattered, Jezreel. They would experience life without mercy, lo ruhumah. They would, they would live like they were 
were their own people, not my people, lo and me. And if you know any of the history, 722 BC, you know that all of this took place. It was awful. The Assyrians came in, they scattered them, they showed them no mercy. And these people that were the people of God are suddenly become not a people at all. That the Israelites trusted in their gods and their money and their connections and their plans and their personal pleasures to save them, to guide their life. And in the end, none of them would save them. In the end, they would be scattered and finally they would be enslaved. Now, if you're reading along in this and you come to this point, you know that they're in a criminal court, that they've sinned against God, that they've blatantly, unrepentantly been unfaithful to God, that they've spent their whole life just using his stuff and then seeking their own pleasures, their own lovers. And at this point, God has every right to execute them, every right to cast them away forever. But there's only one problem. God never stopped loving them. When we've been unfaithful, when we've ignored God, when we're enslaved to our own sins, what does God want to do to us? Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, I am going to allure her, to seduce her. I will lead her into the desert, And speak tenderly to her. There I'm going to give her back her vineyards. I'm going to make the valley of trouble a core and to a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth. As in the days when she came up out of Egypt. When God finds us unfaithful, enslaved in sin, what does he want to do to us? He wants to give us a fresh start. Specifically, he wants to take us to the desert. Doesn't sound very romantic, I know. Back in 2001, um, Jenny and I got engaged. And then 2002, summer, we were married. And the problem with that was is I was a poor seminary student. Seriously just survived day by day. I'd spent more money than I had to buy her a big honking wedding ring. And so when the wedding came, the only money I had left over for a honeymoon meant we were going to Canada. Yeah, pretty, pretty awesome. Now, to you, Canmore, Alberta might not sound that nice, might sound like the desert, but to us, it's beautiful. It's where it all began. It's loaded with memories. Now, let's say, let's say, this is clearly, would never happen, but let's say Jenny and I actually had a fight. Let's say it got serious, though. Let's say we actually got separated for a while. Let's say we weren't sure if we were going to reconcile things. We didn't know what the future looked like. And then one day, I show up and say, Jenny, I, I want to start over. I'll say, I got two tickets to Canmore, Alberta. Now, that might not sound like anything to you. But to her, that's not just a place. That's the place. But I'm saying, let's go back. Let's start over. Let's go to the place where it all began. Let's remember what it felt like to be giddy about each other, to love one another again. And that's what God's saying to Israel. The desert was where God took Israel right when he took them out of Egypt. He took them into the desert and he says, that's what it was like in our first days. Let's start over. Let's undo everything that's happened. Let's begin again. You can have a clean slate. When God finds us unfaithful and enslaved in sin, what does he want to do? He wants to give us a fresh start. 
And then he wants to put the past behind us. Look at verse 16. In that day, the Lord declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. I want you to hear this. At this time, there were two words for husband. One is um, ishi, which means my man. Now, I kind of like that one. The other is Bal-i, which means my master. Now, the problem with that one is it just happened to be the exact same word that they used of their foreign god that they worshipped. So God says, let's, let's start over. But when we start over, I know every time you hear that word Baal, you're going to feel ashamed. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring back the past. But I want to put that behind us. We're going to strike that word from our language. Never again do I want to say that word in our household. We're going to put the past behind us. It's a fresh start. It's a new beginning. You don't have to feel ashamed in my presence. He's going to give us a fresh start. He's going to put the past behind us, and then he's going to restore his protection. Watch verse 19. Oh, that's in verse 18. Here he just says, The bow and the sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. That God is going to protect you again. He's going to keep you safe. And then after that, watch verse 19. This is... Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness that you never showed me. And then you will acknowledge, you will know me personally and deeply. We will share our lives together again. Do you know what this is? This is a marriage proposal. This is me getting down on one knee saying, there's no one I'd rather be with. I want to be with you forever. Will you marry me? Except there's one major difference here. Have you met my wife? She's pretty good looking. Don't want to brag, but, but I could. She's a woman of character. She's a great mother. We have fun together. I enjoy her. I have every reason to want to spend the rest of my life with Jenny. But Israel is a whore. She's been nothing but unfaithful. There is nothing lovely about her. There's no reason that God should love her. Get at this place. At this moment, when she is least attractive, when there's no reason that God should want to be with her, he says, I want to renew our vows. There's no one I'd rather be with forever. When we are at our worst, God could not love us more. God wants to give us a fresh start. He wants to put the past in the past. He wants to restore his protection. He wants to renew our vows. And then lastly, God's love for Israel. He wants to ultimately, his love is transforming. He wants to reverse the irreversible. He wants to recreate everything. He wants to bring them to a new home. Watch this, verse 21. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. Those who are scattered, I'm going to plant them for myself in the land. 
I will show my love to lo Ruhamah, those who are not been loved. I will say to those who are not my people, lo and me, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. We'll share our lives together again. It's self-giving again. You are mine and I am yours. That God's love, I don't know what you've done. Some of you have cheated on your spouses. Some of you have said words that you cannot take back. Some of you have been scarred spiritually in ways that will never heal in this life. And yet God offers the ultimate promise that there is nothing His love cannot undo ultimately. That in eternity, there is hope. He can reverse the irreversible. God wants to give us a fresh start. He wants to put the past in the past. He wants to restore his protection. He wants to renew the vows and ultimately recreate all things. And then he's going to give us a picture. What does this love look like, God? I've never seen this type of love in any relationship in this world. What does it look like? And so he says, let me give you a picture. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, to Hosea, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. You go love her. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. So Hosea goes out and he searches for his wife, for his unfaithful wife. And when he finally finds her, he stumbles upon her where? In a slave market. At this point, she's lost everything. Everything is gone. Here, Gomer, his once beautiful bride, is for sale. She's hit the bottom. She has nothing. Her money's gone. Her looks are gone. Her pleasures are all gone. Her lovers are gone. All the things that she thought life was all about, all the things that she had given herself to, were gone. And there was no one left to save her. The story doesn't really tell us how she became a slave, but we do know that at that time, if you owed too much money, you could be enslaved. And we see her standing there at the slave market. And the auctioneer is calling out, Now who would like to buy this woman? Who wants to pay this massive debt that she has incurred? Who would like to take this selfish, nasty person home? None of her old lovers show up. None of her friends from the world show up. No one else is there to speak for her. And Hosea says, I do. I want to buy her. I want to pay no matter what it costs to bring her home. I want to redeem her. So I bought her. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. This sounds meaningless, but let me tell you that in today's terms, this is roughly $200,000. He just paid a fortune for a woman that no one in their right mind would want And he didn't pay the fortune because he wants her as a slave. He paid the fortune so that once again he could take her home and she could be his wife. You see, Hosea never stopped loving Gomer. 
when the Apostle Peter actually reads this, he's going to say in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10, he said, The prophets, guys like Hosea, who spoke of the grace that was to come, when they talked about Easter and our hope, they searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to when all this would happen. But it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but serving you. Do you know what he just said? The story of Hosea is not just for Israel. It's for us. That this story of Hosea is not just about a man and a woman or about God and Israel. This is about us. This is the hope of Easter. Do you see it? Peter's going to say, we are Gomer. All of us. We've all been created to live in a self-giving relationship with God. That we are created to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. We're created to share our whole lives with Him. To say, He is mine and I am His. And yet we've all been unfaithful. We've all loved ourselves and our stuff and our personal happiness more than we've loved our God. And this is spiritual adultery. As a result, we've all experienced slavery to sin. And some of you are like, what? I'm not a slave. And yet every day, every day, every day, we think and we feel and we act in ways that we do not want to think and feel and act. It's called sin. And Jesus says the reason why you do that is because anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Our unfaithfulness has grieved God. And legally he has the right to put us to death. The only problem is though, there's one big problem, is that God never stopped loving us. So what's God going to do when he finds us unfaithful? When he finds us unrepentant, when he finds us running from him, what is God going to do when he finds us looking unlovely? Well, God in Christ shows us what this love looks like in action. While we were most unlovable, he sent his son to die for us. While we were hopelessly in debt, he paid the price for our sin. This is what Peter says. He says, watch this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, Jezreel. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. That we've all been scattered all over this world. And you know what? God sent his son to come look for us. To come after us. To plant us in his kingdom. To be part of his family. And when he found us, he found us on the auction block. Now who would like to buy this sinner? Who would like to pay the massive debt for you and me? Who would like to buy this selfish person who's never spent a day seeking God in their lives? And Jesus says, I do. I'll pay the price. I'll, I'll, whatever debt has been incurred, I'll pay it. But God, Jesus doesn't want to redeem us to make us his slave. He wants to redeem us so that we can once again share our lives with God. We can be in relationship with him. Peter says it this way. Verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold. It's not like Hosea. Hosea purchased Gomer with silver and gold. But for us, it's something much more precious. 
He didn't just save us out of physical slavery. He saved us out of spiritual slavery. It's not just with silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Christ that Jesus Christ gave his very self for our sake. That when we were most unlovable, he completely loved us by dying for us. He not only died, but he rose again. And Peter says, this is the hope we now face. Let's start in verse 10. Once you were not a people, lo, a me. But now you are the very people of God. Once you had not received mercy, lo, ruhamah. But now you have received mercy. Do you see it? Hosea's prophecy, the story of a husband who would never stop loving his unfaithful bride. Peter says, that's our story. That, that broken family, that's our family. And God has sent his son to die and rise again so that you could be given a fresh start. A clean slate today. That all who trust in Jesus Christ and look to him, all who accept the payment he made on our behalf, I don't know what you've done, But today, you can have a clean slate. That he wants to put the past in the past. Some of you are carrying shame of what's been done to you or what you've done. But let me tell you, if you give it, if you come to Christ, he does not want to shame you. That he wants to restore his provision He's provided us his word, his church, and his spirit to lead us. That he wants to renew his vows. That he, he looks at you as unlovely as you think you are. And he says, I couldn't love you more. I want to spend forever with you. And that he wants to renew all things. That no matter what you've done, there is no sin that Jesus Christ, precious blood, did not pay for. None. That no matter what you've done, there is nothing you've done that Jesus cannot undo. That Jesus Christ, by rising from the dead, proved that he undid death itself. And while we might have to live with some consequences in this life, we have the sure hope that someday he will reverse the irreversible. That heaven and earth will be recreated. That we'll be recreated. That we'll be given a new lives, a new body, and a new home to spend eternity with God. Peter says that Easter, the death and resurrection of Christ, should change the way you think. Should change the way you act. Should change the way you speak and the way you treat one another. And should change the way you suffer. Because now we know that I am no longer that old person. I am no longer a slave. I am no longer unlovely. That God, the most important person in the universe, loved me and gave himself for me so that I could be with him forever. And if I have that, then I have everything. Pray with me. Father, Thank you for the hope of Easter. Thank you for this story of Hosea to teach us 
to teach us, to show us in this big dramatic fashion who we are without you and what you have done for us, Lord. God, I I don't know where people are at today. I pray that those who don't know you, who've never never trusted in you, who've never never looked at what Jesus Christ done, did on the cross and rising from the dead as, as meaning anything to their lives, Lord, I pray that they would see that he died to pay for all of their sins. Just like Gomer, we've been set free, but not just free to be free, but free to be in a relationship with you forever, that we've been invited into your home, into your life. Father, I I pray that you'll be glorified in these words and in your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.